everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Going for Two, the official podcast of the Extra Points newsletter. I am your intrepid host and publisher of said newsletter, Matt Brown. I am joined, as always, by my co-host of Athlon Sports, Brian Fisher. How's it going, buddy? I understand you just got uh, you just got your second shot. Yeah, a little stiff from it, but I uh, can't complain. I'm, I'm not uh, knocked out like a lot of other folks that have, have gotten that second shot, but uh, happy to have it uh, coursing through my veins. And uh, I do feel a little little Hulk-esque, but uh, between that, you know, the new Ted Lasso trailer dropping for, for July, I'm, I'm, I'm doing fantastic today. I, I, I got to admit, I was really hesitant to get into that show in part because whenever I just when at literally every other person in college football media was like, this show is amazing. You should watch it. I'm like, this is based off a commercial. How good can it be? Friends, it is that good. <laughs> it is. Yes. It is. It is worth your time. And, and that's coming from somebody who is the worst Brazilian in the world because I don't really follow soccer. And, it, you know, it seems like uh, this would be a bad week to not be following soccer because that's the only thing college football Twitter wants to talk about. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is the the news of the day, and, and I think it's it's fascinating to see how this has leaked over to certainly a big story over in Europe. But how how much it has become a story, the the news of the rise and the fall now uh, of the Super League, how it has kind of transposed itself over across the pond here in, in America. And yeah, part of that is to do with you know three owners that uh, are are American three ownership groups uh, that do have the connections here in the shores. But I, I think it was a, a great excuse for a lot of people in college athletics to kind of kind of think of themselves uh what would happen if that happened with college football and, and i think that's why uh one of one of our questions even uh today in, in our mailbag segment yeah so you kind of to, to step back for a second this episode we, we teased this last time we wanted to to get into some of your questions talk about the things that you're most interested in and you just like everybody else in college and college football internet is super interested in this um super league concept and you know part of it is uh, on one hand i get the interest right i've partly built a career chasing esoteric conference realignment rumors i've been writing about proverbial super conferences in college football since like the 1930s i have a whole book chapter about the airplane league we, we, you know you could you can find some stuff about that everywhere i might dig it i might actually pick at it again for extra points in these next couple of days. And I understand a lot of the similarities between major European soccer and college football in terms of how it ties into your social identity. And, you know, that's a, it's a staple of college uh, football offseason content is to describe various college teams as, as European teams. But, Brian, I, I know we talked about this a little bit off air. I, I got to admit, I, I really don't see the one-to-one -one comparison about like, oh, a couple of European teams are interested in this. As I understand it right now here on Tuesday afternoon, they're not going to do it anymore. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's the same incentives for college programs to do this. Like we already kind of have a super league. It's called the power five. Absolutely. And I think it's it's important to keep in mind the, the Super League concept is very much akin to the college football playoff. You know, it is not yeah. Texas and Ohio State and Florida joining one league and playing their conference schedules like that. I know that's what everybody kind of took off and, and ran with in terms of uh, bringing this concept to college football. But it, it's much more akin to the postseason format uh, of the sport being, you know, really just an exclusive group that always gets access. And frankly, there are some parallels in terms of talking about playoff expansion to when, when you talk about going to eight teams 
Does it include auto bids? Does it include a certain number of, of group of five spots? Does it include uh, at larges? That, it's almost a similar concept to, to that. And, and I think we actually might get towards that down that road. Uh, I know the college football playoff management committee is, is meeting this week, actually. I, I don't expect any news to come out of that, uh, those meetings. But, you know, down the road in, in the next year or two, uh, you're going to start here college football playoff expansion talk. And that's when it kind of comes into uh, overlapping with this Super League concept. But uh, at the end of the day, it, it's a fun thought exercise. Uh, it just does kind of bring you back almost to, to the summer of 2010 and just jumping on Twitter there and seeing this this school might go this way and uh, this other school is saying no way. And it just kind of uh, brought me a lot of a lot of flashbacks to uh, a lot of time spent on Twitter and on the Internet and on the phone and uh, on, on pretty much every form of communication to talk with folks. But uh, it, it's a fun concept and, and novel in theory, but I, I don't think it's coming to uh, not only college athletics, but just the difficulty of implementing in college football um, with so many different uh, varying groups. I, I just see it's, it's hard for me to kind of see it coming uh, to fruition on, on our side of the pond. Yeah, no, it, it, I think that that was honestly also part of the appeal of, of this idea from so many other college journalists, because, um, you know, the 2010 to 2012 era, when everybody was changing leagues, it was a simpler and a stupider time on Twitter and, and in this sport. And, and obviously it had a, some, some uh, side effects that were negative. You know, we, we lost some rivalries and, and, and travel became a, a bigger deal, but it was fun. Um, I mean, it still is fun. There's, there's a reason that, that people pay for my newsletters and I'm trying to track down rumors about the A-Sun or, or the Missouri Valley. Um, this is a, a subject that fascinates people. And I, maybe, maybe we, we can kind of direct the conversation to stuff that actually might happen um, rather than um, hypotheticals that we'll save till June. Because look, folks, we got a long off-season ahead of us. And I recognize that part of what I do is basically always do off-season content, but I don't want to get too ahead of myself here. And if we have to start pulling out the Mount Rushmore's and the Super Leagues and the, the made-up conference realignment proposals in late April, it's going to be a long-ass summer. I'm not ready for that yet. Uh, no, but you know, I, I think it is important to kind of keep in mind that it does kind of dovetail a little bit. Coming out of that NCAA tournament, there was renewed, I guess, talk of the Power Five breaking away, of course. And and I think there's always been that theory out there that at some point the NCAA and, and the Power Five, that the major college football programs are just going to separate from each other. And I, I think it's it brought up again this week with, with the Super League concept. And it's just something, again, I, I have a hard time seeing because if, if the Power Five were to separate from the NCA, you're still going to have to create an NCA-like apparatus to govern your rules, govern pretty much everything with when it comes to recruiting and, and all that. And uh, you know, with with NIL, with with Alston, with a lot of things coming down the pipe, uh, you know, you're going to keep hearing that talk. I, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I think we're a long ways from even going down that road. When we're, we're not even at the start of that. I, I still think it, it's going to be the current status quo. Yeah, there will be tweaks, maybe an expanded playoff here or there, but uh, in terms of these meaningful changes like they're talking about over in Europe, I, I just don't see it coming across the pond over there. No, I, 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 I do not either. Um, let's get to a couple of these other questions um, that, that folks here submitted to us. Um, I, I had recently written about some actual conference realignment rumors or, or, or things, things that I'm hearing. Um, and one of them was within the Missouri Valley. Um, I had a couple of people within the industry say, hey, we know, watch this league to potentially add another member that's outside of the Midwest. That's not in that core ge geographic area. Look for a team that's going to be 
in a major metropolitan area and particularly near a major airport. And if you can do that, then the, the, the travel costs and, the, and both in terms of money and time for all the other teams are really not that big of a deal. Uh, or at least not as big of a deal as you might think. So that means, like, you look at the at the Missouri Valley, your Evansville's, your Loyola's, your Illinois State's. Think of a school like Denver or Texas Arlington or Oral Roberts, if we want to consider Tulsa some kind of major metropolitan area. You know, some, something like this, right? So, uh, reader Zach Miller, listener Zach Miller asks. So I get why the other schools would want to add an out-of-state area that's near a major airport. But what's in it for the school that's got to fly everywhere? What's in it hypothetically for your Denver or your Arlington or your your Little Rock or some other kind of school? And, And I can tell you here, obviously, it's going to depend on the school and the cities and the league involved. But if you are a team that is going by, by joining a, a league where you're going to have to fly everywhere, where you're going to potentially make more money from NCAA tournament credits, make more money um, from uh, media exposure, or uh, raise the, the, the profile of your athletic programs, it's worth doing. Uh, especially if a lot of those flights aren't very long, the, you can you can move pretty far in this country these days on a flight that's under two hours, um, that which is a, a, a not that not that big of a lift like, compared to like a four a fourteen hour bus ride. Would would you join a a plane league? and leave one low major for another low major that's kind of the same? Probably not. But if you can sell it as you're going to be benefiting in other ways, even if you're not getting a gigantic television check, it might it, that might be worth it. Well, I think in particular basketball it would be a big driver of this. Um, you mentioned getting into a better AQ league and just elevating the profile to where you can have more regular uh, teams in the NCAA tournament. Uh, potentially, if you're one of these schools that are near an airport, uh, like like Zach is talking about, to where you can get into better competition. You know, raise your profile, raise your net rating, raise your uh, a lot of those things related to the NCAA tournament. Because let's face it, a lot of those mid to, to lower majors uh, rely on a lot of that revenue that, that's coming in the form of those. So I think that's kind of one one theory as well. Obviously, you're talking about exposure, just better media deals. Um, you know, realignment itself is is kind of designed to renegotiate those TV deals. So, um, you know, if you're stuck in a long-term agreement that your conference isn't really uh, producing the amount of revenue that you think it is, maybe this is an opportunity for you to kind of jump at uh, a new league that does offer you know th- that promise of of some additional media dollars. And um, frankly, I think it's it's kind of lost in in it a little bit. It's just fit. You know, sometimes you're just not quite the greatest fit with some of your conference peers. Maybe you're, uh, you know, religious, religious affiliated university, and you want to kind of get back more in league with uh, other schools that kind of share your same values and or vice versa. You know, I think that's, um, you know, you kind of look back at, at the Big East um, and, and how it was founded, how it's kind of been rejiggered these last couple of years as well. Um, you know, I think that was part of the driving factor, not the only one, but it's certainly one of the issues out there that um, just making sure that, uh, you know, you're in league with your, your fellow conference peers. And so I, I think that kind of comes to mind as well. That, that is an enormous point that when we, when we're talking about realignment right now, anywhere, the television side is, is generally a much smaller factor because, because honestly, outside of the power five and maybe the American and maybe like the big East, your media rights revenue 
is going to be pretty negligible. Like your your actual distribution is going to be six figures and, and potentially even less than that. Um, so like the, you know the, the difference between the Sun Belt and Missouri Valley, or the Missouri Valley and the A10, or the the Big Sky and the WAC or whatever. Like it, it's it's just not that much money. It's money that you can kind of come up with a, a myriad of other ways. But but institutions want to be seen as peers of similar institutions. That might mean public schools with public schools, and by that. Flagships and flagships, regional schools and regional schools, uh, institutions that have similar athletic budgets, uh, that have similar admissions requirements, that have uh, similar missions and similar kinds of students that they're targeting. And that even plays into realignment, too, because you also have schools that are looking at out-of-state enrollment strategies. You know, Going back to the Missouri Valley, again, one of the reasons it was told to me that you have schools that are interested in extending outside the footprint is to find more students. This idea that if we are in Colorado, if we're in Tennessee, if we're in Texas, we might be able to increase our brand exposure in markets that export college students. We can get more people paying that sweet, sweet out-of-state tuition. And depending on the circumstances, the school that's flying everywhere might want to do that same thing, uh, trade students. So all of those things are, are th- you things you have to consider when evaluating any potential rumor or alignment. It's really not just about what can we do to minimize bus trips and potentially optimize my net rating. And, and I think it is also kind of going back to, you know, the realignment days where we were talking about, you know, how, how good an airport was and, and what that proximity to uh, campus is. A lot of these schools, I mean, it's just difficult to kind of get your teams uh, across your leagues and, and around around the country. Um, you know, a lot of these schools, even at the power five level, can rely on uh, they're not getting chartered everywhere in terms of that volleyball team. Uh, you know, they are taking commercial flights. And so if you're located near a major airport, it's it's a lot easier to kind of get to some of your conference peers. And so uh, that saves a lot of headaches and, and frankly, is, is a big issue. Uh, I know at, at certainly those middle and lower tier schools where travel costs are, are a huge part of the deal in terms of, you know, the money out the door for that athletic department. Uh, you know, as much as we want to talk about, you know, scholarships and, and those inter-conference transfers and, and inter-school transfers, uh, a lot of it comes down to, you know, you're actually having to pay uh, some of these travel firms uh, to, to find you flights, to find you buses, to, to find just ways to connect with your conference its peers. And yeah, that, that network has evolved over time, but it can still be difficult if there's not a major airport nearby. Uh, this is otherwise known as, uh, as the West Virginia problem. Um, <laughs> there are a couple yeah. other schools that, that are in this boat. That is the, the most famous example. Um, speaking of realignment, uh, listener Holden McKee asks, with Eastern Washington and Hartford potentially exploring reclassifying from Division One to other uh, either two or three, will any FBS schools consider the same action? What are the financial considerations from going from a G5 team to an independent? Well, so those are those are two different questions. I'll answer this. Uh, FBS teams considering straight up leaving Division One entirely? Um, no. Uh, the only possible school I could think of that might even maybe have that conversation would be Akron or Kent State. Uh, Kent State just hired a new athletic director. I believe Akron's still in the process of doing so. They're not anywhere near ready to have that conversation, but like you could at least imagine a world where they might be. The differences at the FBS level, where even a small school is looking at 25, 30, maybe larger million dollar athletic department and a low major at half the cost of that. They're, they're, they're not the same sport. I mean, they're, they're, they're not the same thing. You would look at maybe going from FBS to SCS or making changes beyond reclassifying generally. What I can tell you big picture is that I think the Overton window about reclassification across the country is changing. I've been told by some people in this industry that I trust that 
Uh, there are other private schools within the Northeast that are not saying we want to go to Division Three, but they're saying we should do a strategic review and let's double check the math and get an idea for what that means, because we should at least think about it. Um, that there are small schools in the Midwest that 20 years ago would have never considered this and are now it, it, it's, it's not a completely unfathomable option. There's major reasons still why you wouldn't want to do it. And Hartford situation where, you know, candidly, I think the math probably does make sense for them to move to Division Three. That math isn't going to work for a lot of other schools. Honestly, you really do have to pop up in the hood and look at things like their tuition discount rate and what kind of revenue they're getting from non-scholarship athletes, where they're recruiting students, whether they're over-enrolled or under-enrolled and what their future trajectory looks like. And that's all stuff that you're not going to be able to look at from just looking at the standings. Um there's also a pretty big political uh, price to pay for doing that. We're even seeing this at Hartford. We're like, no offense to any Hartford people listening to this, but if, if that many people cared about this program ahead of time, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, and that includes local media. But now that there's a chance that they might reclassify, especially right after they made the NCAA men's tournament, suddenly you're going to get a lot of bad political press. And that means if their regents or their senior administrators leave for a different job or try to leave for a different job, their bio or when they're being described in another outlet is so-and-so who led the charge to get Hartford reclassified. That's going in your first beginning of your, of your bio, whether you like it or not. What I can tell you is that Hartford pulls this off and the world doesn't end and everyone's not blackballed from the higher education industry, then I think somebody at like a Niagara or a St. Peter's or somebody, you know, somewhere in that, in that world will look at this and go, we should think about this a little bit more. Cause I, I can just tell you like big picture here, what happened at Idaho. Now that I honestly think that's going to be the right move in 10 years, but in five years, there's nothing that happened to Idaho. That's going to make anybody else really excited about reclassifying. Well, you, you know, mentioning Idaho, I mean, that is kind of the, the the test case, you know, really for the last couple of years in terms of moving down. But I, I, I don't see it. I think it's even harder to do, especially for some of those schools out west that are kind of locked in because there's just frankly not enough universities around, um, you know, and you almost have to kind of go along with the pack um, for, for a lot of those places. And I think the, you know, the NCAA is looking at, you know, a lot of these, these issues, um, you know, they're looking at reclassification, sports sponsorship issues. Um, part of that is because of the pandemic. Part Part of that is because of the financial pressures that a lot of these schools like Hartford are facing. And I, I almost I, I wouldn't be shocked if down the road, you know, you're kind of can see some of the mixed classification um, to where, you know, you're already seeing it now with uh, sports. Like I think bowling um, comes to mind where you can have multiple divisions uh, kind of rolled up into one NCAA championship. I think uh, lacrosse is still at that point. Um, there, there's a couple of others where you don't necessarily have to be a division one school, but you can still sponsor that sport. And I think that's going to kind of come back in vogue with a, a lot of these, especially Olympic sports uh, at some of these schools like Hartford. I, I would imagine that kind of mixing and matching um, a, along with some of these more regional leagues um, to kind of promote the, the travel benefits. Um, you know, you kind of see the MPSF, uh, you know, has, has uh, you know, kind of been kind of the model for that second tier uh, conference, especially at West. To be honest, something like that um, in, in a lot of these places for to kind of house those Olympic sports as kind of the bigger conferences kind of shed them. Uh, you know, to, to form more regional leagues, I think could be uh, something that, that is on the table for, for a lot of these schools that would make a lot more sense than truly dropping down uh, a full level. 
Uh, this is something I've been advocating on extra points here for a minute. <laughs> and at the end, simply loosen up some of those rules to do that. If, I mean, if you really kind of dig into the, what Hartford is, was, was telling car sports to, uh, to consider when they did their, their reclassification study and some of the stuff that Hartford's administration has said in public, I look at this and think they really don't want to be division one anymore. And, and they may actually have some good reasons for that. They're, they're not really messaging it in the, the, mo- the, in the most helpful way, but it, 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 it's, it can be frustrating when people look at this and go, okay, are we going to see around and everything? Like there really are some pretty Hartford specific stuff in terms of, of where they're recruiting and how Hartford is saying, we're not really generating any money from non-scholarship athletics, which is something that is not true, not true at, at a lot of other places. Um, there's uh, the, the second part of that question we'll get into here a little bit later because we have a few other things here about, about going independent or, or moving out of G5 leagues. One other quick thing I want to hit before we, we, um, we turn some time over to our sponsors. Uh, listener Alex asks, if I understand the pre-pandemic NCAA finances correctly, softball is now considered a revenue sport. What other current non-revenue sports do you think could realistically become revenue sports by the end of this upcoming decade? And that touches on something I, I was kind of alluding to here in the beginning. And for my own style guide, I try not to use the word revenue sports anymore because honestly, literally every Olympic sports program generates some revenue. You can generate a lot of revenue, even if you never sell a single ticket or uh, you sell a single hot dog at a game or anything, because if you're not a headcount sport, all the other people in your roster that aren't getting scholarships are typically paying close to full tuition. Um, it's not uncommon when you really pop up, open the hood for a school to make money from their swim or their track team, despite not having any fan uh, monetization whatsoever, just from tuition. A lot of the people that are collegiate swimmers, they're coming from households that have that are, are, are relatively affluent and can afford to pay a higher price. When we look across the country, when you dig into some of these FRS reports, you can find schools that actually generate a, a, a fair amount of revenue from their softball programs. Oklahoma, as an example, um, seven figures. Uh, a couple of other schools within the SEC, I imagine at LSU and at Alabama and at Florida, it's it's a it's a bigger deal out, out west as well. Um, I don't like to use the, re- I mean, the, the revenue side exactly, because that one part, that term colloquially kind of implies that that um, fan generated revenue outpaces expenses. And that, to the best of my knowledge, isn't really true anywhere in softball. Um, it's not true for most sports. It's not true for most baseball programs, for that matter. But um, if you market it well and you're good at it and you create a, an experience that fans want to be a part of, absolutely, <laughs> beyond just your t- ability to get tuition and 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 potentially participate in guarantee games, you can make hundreds of thousands of dollars from your television, from your concessions, from your parking, and from your attendance. And I think when you pop open the, open the hood, there are other places that do this beyond the obvious answer of baseball um, hockey, both men's and women's hockey is already a actual quote unquote revenue sport at several schools that have bigger arenas. It can be at other ones. I think as minor league baseball declines, the, the revenue potential for both baseball and softball, I think will go up. The other one that I'm really pretty bullish about big picture is volleyball, particularly women's volleyball. We, we've seen some examples of places like Nebraska 
that have turned these matches into statewide events. I, I have been to a Nebraska women's volleyball game. I have seen, you know, 9,000 people pack that arena and they do the 96 bulls, like walk up music and they turn off the lights and you've got all these like 11 year old girls waving cell phones and it's super cool. And, and I think as more people, uh, one, get to watch these things on television and as schools begin to really take the live experience seriously, yeah, there, there, you can you can definitely make this a ticketed event and make it a commercially uh, viable product. Uh, I, I, I am bullish about women's sports generally and about softball and volleyball specifically. What do you think, Brian? Well, that those were the the exact ones that I was thinking of. Um, you know, sp- particularly in hockey, I think we're we're starting to see the investment, especially on the men's side, in terms of arenas, in terms of just facilities, and uh, you're starting to kind of see it. Uh, I, I was reading the other day about how how many Canadians were, were coming down to go through the NCAA ranks um, to to play hockey, just because it's it's a better experience for them. Obviously, you you do add in that academic component to where they can get a degree. Um, you know, and, and you know. Per, proceed through the NCAA system uh, just as normal because you know they're they're being drafted so early um, that it's it's a much better and, and easier uh, path if you want to go to the University of Minnesota or Wisconsin and just from a lifestyle perspective than riding that bus on minor league hockey across Alberta or wherever it is so um, yeah I think hockey is, is the big one on the men's side you mentioned volleyball I think that's a huge one especially sand volleyball uh, which has really kind of come along now it was for a long time listed as uh, an NCAA emerging sport. I think it's going to be close to kind of tipping over uh, to where it's a you know, full-blown sport if it's not already already. Uh, I, I don't remember off the top of my head. And the other one I, I also thought of was gymnastics. Um, you know, just the, the way that you start to see some of these programs already. Um, you know, down, down in the SEC, uh, Utah in, in particular has just a, a gigantic fan base. And when you throw in, you know, the, what's coming with NIL, particularly for those female athletes, I, I think it's going to be huge. And I think it's going to continue to drive conversation. I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is it, it was so tough, you know, five, 10 years ago to even watch a college gymnastics meet. And now between streaming, between television, um, you know, it's on the Pac-12 network, it's on the SEC network, it's on the ACC network. So I think that has been the the different component nowadays for a lot of these sports is um, it, it's a television product that, that you can tune in for. And that, that changes the game significantly for a lot of these, these emerging sports. And uh, I think, you know, you mentioned not having to kind of, kind of call it revenue, non-revenue. I, I know back Back in the day, it was always hard count versus equivalency sport um, was, was kind of the dividing line. And um, you know, that's another thing that I think is going to get examined um, with the NCAA and uh, a lot of these reviews is, you know, wh- why are we giving 12 scholarships out on, on a team of 30? You know, when when for a lot of these power five schools, especially they can afford it, you know, versus if if and if you can't, you can go to the division two or division three route um, for a lot of these things. So I think that that's something that's on on the horizon that, that I think a lot of these schools are going to be dealing with as well. Yeah, the the biggest example for that debate, I feel like, is with baseball, where you have some programs, uh, not just Power Five programs, mostly Power Five programs that would really like permission to spend more on baseball scholarships and baseball coaches and staffers and build out that infrastructure. Right now, they can't. Um, and you, at the Olympic level, you have you have a lot of schools that aren't even that aren't even close to fully funding the scholarships are already allowed to have. Like it's, it's it, you, we essentially do have some division one teams that are playing division three um, for swimming. They're just not giving any scholarships and they're just playing division one schedules. And, and maybe you have to codify it. So those aren't actually playing with the rest of D one schools, you, you know, say, but there, there is a way um, 
for more of these programs to sell more tickets and be a bigger live event experience, I think. And that will continue as it's easier to watch them on television and easier to build a fan base around those events. And and I think it just kind of goes back to how unique college athletics is in this country. You know, when when we talk about volleyball, when we talk about some of these other sports that we were just mentioning, um, you know, if if you're in other countries, you know, a lot of that is under the purview of some national sport sporting organization or event. And and while that's somewhat the case here, just the the Olympic movement itself is is much more divorced from, you know, the actual operations. Um, Certainly there's congressional charters and all that, but it it is just such a unique uh, setup. And, and college athletics. And we have a, a, not only a ton of people in there, um, you know, thousands and thousands of schools. So I think it is important to kind of keep in mind when, when we are talking about a lot of these sports, um, this is such a unique endeavor uh, compared to everywhere else uh, around the country. And frankly, it, it's a big, big reason why when we go to the Olympics, um, you know, America does really well in those medal counts because of this system and, and feeding up. And I think we're really going to continue to see con- uh, refinement um, in terms of how things operate and ultimately the growth from some of these emerging sports as well. Yeah, there's a lot of concern among um, both athletic directors and some involved with the U.S. Olympic committees about how sustainable that model is as some of these Olympic sports programs get dropped. Uh, That's probably a podcast and a newsletter for uh, another day. We have a couple other mostly financially related questions I want to dig into, which I think now is is a good time for us to talk real quick about a couple of sponsors um, that help give us money so we can talk about how athletic departments get some money. One of those is Proper Good, um, which is a sponsor that I'm glad to be working with right now because it ties into what's been a particularly big challenge for me and our family over these past couple of months. As now as we're slowly starting to emerge from our quarantine chrysalis back into the what we would consider regular society, all of our routines have been completely blown to hell. And a big part of that has been food, right? My eating schedule is not the same as it was. My cooking schedule certainly isn't when I go to the grocery store. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, I've been finally going back to the gym. I'm trying to get a little bit healthier. My own health goals have changed a little bit. And um, sometimes it would be nice to have something that a way to make that food preparation and delivery that meets my goals easier without me having to, to think about it here so much. And that's, that's what proper good is. These guys make the tastiest and healthiest zero prep meals that, that you can want. They're made with ultra clean and functional ingredients. Uh, not any of the stuff that has a hyphen and has 40 characters and you can't really pronounce it. There's no added sugar and they're ready to eat in just 90 seconds. You don't even have to store it in the fridge. So you can just, uh, or have to deal with any complicated food storage situations. You just enjoy it at home. When you're at work, when work was the place that we went to, you pop the top off, stick it in the microwave, you're good to go. Um, they also have options for a bunch of other food, you know, uh, various diets or plans that you might have. If you want to go plant-based, you're doing keto, you want to go gluten-free, you want to go dairy-free, they have options for you lunches, dinners, whatever else that you need. Find out more at eatpropergood.com. And you know, with a new sign up, you can get 10% off your first order. I uh, also want to point out that this podcast is a product of Extra Points. We've got a bunch of big changes happening at Extra Points right now. I'm really excited about them. We're transitioning. Don't tell anybody. It's a little secret. We're transitioning to a new website where we can have some, some static document hosting and a couple of other additional features plugged in there, which I think will help make this podcast better and also the future of that newsletter better. If you like talking about this kind of stuff, if you're curious about college athletic department financials, 
about smaller league realignment, about how business operations and how everything all fits together for an athletic department. And you like listening to this 45 minute a week conversation. By God, you are going to love Extra Points because that publishes four days a week and digs into the exact same stuff and you can read it um, instead of just having me kind of talk it at you. Uh, you can get, become a paid subscriber right now and get 20% off, which gives you four of these episodes every, uh, these newsletters every week, uh, plus access to our paid Discord channel, where you can talk with Extra Points readers about whatever else is on your mind and and, and holler at me. You can get all those at extrapointsmb.com slash go for two. That gets you 20% off your paid subscription. That means you can get a whole year of these things um, for under 60 bucks. That's a hell of a deal. That's over. That's that's basically like getting the equivalent of three books over the course of a year about how college athletic works. That's extrapointsmb.com slash G-O-F-O-R number two, 20% off. Uh, a couple more questions here I want to be able to get into. Uh, my buddy Lolo asked, I think a really pretty insightful one. It says, pretend you're an athletic director here. You had to go down each of the co- the current conferences and pick out a team from each league to succeed as an FBS independent. What school would you want to pick? And I, I, this is an interesting question, I think, because the criteria that you use would be different from league to league. I don't think you automatically pick the best football school or the best athletic school in each particular conference. So I figured, hey, why don't we sit down here? Let's go through a couple of these and let's see if we're on the same page. We can start here in my neck of the woods because I took this question in the Big Ten. I think if you're trying to pick it to, hey, what's a, what's a team that's going to be the most successful commercially, uh, athletically, you know, et cetera, as an independent, you could probably pick a couple of them that would work out pretty well, but you really can't go wrong with my alma mater, the Ohio State Buckeyes, right? Na- literal, maybe the national athletic brand. You sponsor literally every sport, so you can fit into all different varieties of other Olympic sports programming. You won't have a problem selling a TV package, and uh, you should have no problems getting any games that you can actually win. Am I off base here? No, that was that was literally my first thought. And so maybe that, that's why we're doing a podcast together is we we think so much alike. But, you know, I think the the other thing that when, when after thinking of the Buckeyes, first and foremost, for all the reasons you just listed, I mean, just the the, the location, the, the facilities, the broad based athletic department. Um, you know, I also kind of gave some thought to Michigan, um, you know, certainly from an, an academic standpoint, um, they, they think a little bit differently than the Buckeyes do. And so I think if, if anybody kind of wanted to really push that nuclear button, uh, it would almost be the Wolverines. And and, um, you know, they I, I think it, truth be told, they would love to be playing uh, some of the Ivy League schools in, in, oh, yeah. in a lot of different sports, um, you know, and, you know, kind of it, it would be tough to cobble the, together the, the football component. But if there's any, um, you know, really school that can kind of travel, travel the country and, and still get the, the massive crowds, it, it would probably be the Wolverines as well. So I think those are the easy two out of the Big Ten is, is Michigan and Ohio State to, to nobody's surprise. Yeah, I, 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 I don't disagree about Michigan either. I, I think that would work. And, and you could even sell that to some of your fans. Like, yeah, sure, we'll play Michigan. We'll play Ohio State every year in, in every sport. That shouldn't be a problem. But but really, we, we want to go play other uh, World War II historical uh, uh, you know, powers and, and really spend some more time with Cornell. And, and that would be a very Michigan bad thing to do. Um, the Big 12, um, I hate to kind of be super basic, but I mean, perhaps more so than any other power league and team in the country, it's got to be Texas, right? You already have your own dang TV channel. You have, it, it's a similar argument to Ohio State. Texas's alumni base may, maybe isn't quite as national as Ohio State's is, but it's probably pretty close. But in terms of the infrastructure, you need to be successful. Uh, 
they, they have it more than almost anybody, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you're talking about uh, certainly one of the biggest programs, not only in, in, in the state of Texas, which supports a lot of, of other colleges to where they can play with them. But uh, I just think the they, they make a lot of money for a reason. And all these ingredients are there um, really to go independent uh, tomorrow. And, and I'm sure once the Big 12 grant of rights comes up and, and that mo- new media deal, you're going to start to hear rumors, however far-fetched that they are, that, you know, Texas is kind of considering, you know, maybe they want to do the, the independent route. And, um, you know, to, to any school, school out there that could do it. I think Texas is, is certainly ready to go. It's almost a, a turnkey property um, in terms of that name recognition. Um, you know, you're talking about uh, being able to not play, not only play the, the in-state teams, but uh, I think that that is a program that can go around, whether it's football or basketball, um, you know, they can go to the West Coast and they would like it. And uh, I think geographically, it just makes a lot of sense too. you know, to where you're really never more than two and a half, three hours away from pretty much anybody that you want to play. And, uh, you know, being right there in Austin, it's a, it's a city that I think a lot of, a lot of programs would like to go into. And so, uh, you're already seeing it a little bit, uh, as well with, you know, Austin FC, uh, the MLS team is, is, uh, there now in the city. Uh, they've got an F1 race there. So I, I think it's, it's a growing in importance, uh, just that town. And I think the carryover to that would be certainly the ease of use that, uh, you know, Texas could be on uh, going out there. And frankly, I, I think they would have less ties to other universities if they wanted to do it. Like, I, I always imagine Oklahoma being in the same conversation with Texas, except when it comes to this part, because I think Oklahoma is tied so closely to Oklahoma State in that, and just from a political and, and educational perspective, um, you know, I, I get less of a sense that Texas is truly tethered to not only Texas A&M, as we've seen uh, with, with them leaving the Big 12 uh, years ago, but, you know, Texas Tech, um, these are all multiple university systems. And so I think Texas, more than anyone else, uh, can, can really kind of pull that ripcord quickly. Those are, I think, the two most obvious ones. But when you get to some of the other leagues, it gets a little bit more complicated. I, I've been, I was thinking about the ACC here, and I'm not sure there's an automatic obvious, like clearly obvious answer. I'm, I'm, before I give mine, what, what would you think for the ACC program that might be best equipped to go independent? Well, I mean, I think you could almost add Florida State in there because they've been a previous independent for, for years and years and years before even joining the uh, uh, ACC. But to, to my my first thought was was also Georgia Tech. You're located in Atlanta. Um, you know, you, you do have a unique fan base and, and, and alumni network that I think could, could make it work. I'm not saying it's it's the greatest uh, opportunity for the, for them to go uh, independent, but I think just where they're located, um, you know, how that school is positioned. Um, you know, I think they, they could be kind of one of the, the easy test cases um, to, to kind of do it. But that uh, it, it is tough, you know, to, to find the right one in the ACC. But those are kind of my two um, would be Florida State and, and Georgia Tech. Yeah, there's the, the there's been there's several teams in this league that have long histories of being independent at, at one point or another, and and it, those those make sense. Um, my initial thought was Miami for for somewhat similar reasons. Miami is this weird case of the private school, right, where you're in this very important, talent rich, uh, TV market rich area. But that's not where a lot of your actual students and grads live. Like Miami's uh, actual like student base is still pretty heavily Northeastern, which is part of what makes the ACC an, an attractive entity for them because um, it, it gives them exposure in, in places like New York and New Jersey and Massachusetts where uh, a lot of their the people that end up going to Miami go and, and where their graduates end up going. So that kind of, of full coastal exposure 
might allow, you know, give them a different kind of financial and television flexibility to function as an independent. Any, anybody school that's located in, in anywhere in the South or on the Eastern seaboard is not going to have a trouble finding geographically constrained, uh, you know, nearby games, neither you know, Florida state and Miami, neither of them had any trouble scheduling anybody before they actually joined this league. Uh, I, I think Florida state would be fine too. The other, the tricky thing about both the Florida schools and tech for uh, maybe some different reasons is they are secretly not nearly as rich as a fan might think that they might be given all of the success that they've enjoyed on the field, right? Florida state was a teacher's college, not that long ago. Their struggles with, with, with fundraising, I think have been pretty well documented given that that's a reason why they suck right now. Uh, Miami also in a similar situation where over the years um, they've been much better at sports than maybe their administration wanted them to be, or planned for them to be, or had fundraised for them to be. Um, so both of those, nobody in this league, even your Duke or North Carolina, is a line, a plug and play success, perhaps like like Texas or Ohio State might be. We'll go, we'll go through the rest of these here really quickly. Um, the American, I I I'd pick Tulane. Not even close to the best athletic program in this country, uh, but you can fill out an entire schedule for almost everything within a, uh, a, a, a bus ride. You're a great academic institution. You've been independent before, um, and uh, you have a little bit more fans than maybe a couple of the other commuter colleges might have that are more geographically dispersed. I, I agree, but uh, I think obviously Navy being a former independent would would, oh, would have been my answer. answer. You know that, that was kind of oh. what I was I was going with, but uh, maybe that was uh, almost glaringly obvious. Uh, you know, I was also thinking. You know, it, it's funny because I know some UCF fans w- would love to kind of say, "Well, we're we're good enough and, and big enough to co- kind of go independent," and and I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I also think that that's another university that's kind of tied um, as much as they don't want to hear it to to UCF and and some of their other regional peers. So I I, I do have. To trouble thinking of, of some of the, the AAC schools, but I, I would also kind of throw out SMU there, uh, another school that is located in a, a major metro area in, in a state with a ton of other programs around it. it it's a private school. Um, you know, I think it's, it's definitely, definitely occupies a, a bit of a unique position. Um, you're kind of in, in the hierarchy of the sport. And um, yeah, I think they would, it wouldn't be as successful as, as certainly we've seen Navy or some of those other schools be, but I, I would almost put SMU as, as potentially out there as well. For Conference USA, um, and this I, I, I may have even written this before in on extra points. Uh, there's an obvious choice here for me, UTEP, and it's not because UTEP's good. In fact, it, UTEP is is pretty bad at a lot of things. But but I look at them as following a model pretty similar to New Mexico State, where um, you're spending a lot of money on traveling. And if you say stopped playing some of these Alabama schools where you don't get a ton of players anyway and use that schedule space to schedule some more body bag games, you sold your sell your local television rights to flow for 300 grand a year and just be as local as possible and let yourself get, get you know, clobbered three times a year. I think you're going to come out financially ahead. Then you, then you are chasing a league championship you're probably never going to actually get. And if you are a really bottom of the barrel G5 team, I, that I, I really do think that's something worth considering if you could find a place to put your basketball program. Like I like that is where you know Tulane and Navy like those are fun thought experiments. Like I really think UTEP should call a meeting for this. You know, 
Yeah, I mean, you could even look at potentially, you know, landing some of those other sports with the whack, you know, recon, yeah. you know, reconstructed or, or even kind of dropping down a level to go as an FCS independent if you're UTEP. And and I think it's going to be interesting to see. We've already heard these these rumors about um, UT uh, Rio Grande Valley uh, potentially starting a football program, some of the others kind of in that area. Maybe that makes it a little bit more likely um, you know, that you can kind of go your own route uh, because it would be certainly make a lot more sense if that is much more of a regional school. Than, than playing that kind of uh, broad area of, of Conference USA. I have absolutely no idea who I'd pick for the MAC because mostly I think these schools are structurally very similar. Like I maybe Toledo, but if any of you feel really passionate, um, you can tweet me at Matt Brown uh, EP. Brian, is, is there any that, that overwhelmingly jumps out to you? Maybe maybe NIU just from the history of success that that football program has had. But uh, you're right. It's, there's a reason the MAC is, is as a league, um, probably the, the most similar in terms of the, the peer institutions. And that does make it a little bit hard. Maybe Ohio out, out you know, but I, I just don't see really anybody else uh, inside the MAC. There, this, is a, this is a league full of good fits. And, and that's kind of why. Yeah, this, this is not a pejorative. That's a homogenous league. Uh, the Mountain West. Uh, I, I think you got to go with the troops again, right? You take Air Force, recruits nationally, national brand, um, has football coaches that have uh, not so secretly insinuated they don't really want to be in the Mountain West anyway. Um, if you want to pick Hawaii, I'm not going to complain too heavily, but uh, I, I, I don't think Air Force would struggle for money, uh, exposure, or ability to get games if they win independent. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Air Force, uh, Hawaii, you mentioned, I think the obvious answer as well that you can kind of throw out there is Boise State, because I think a lot of those Broncos fans have clamored for that, you know, especially with, given the fr- friction and, and frustration at times with, with the Mountain West as a league. So I think that is, is out there. And I think, frankly, having BYU almost become a, a, a regional partner uh, these last couple of years with the way they've scheduled games and uh, really kind of developed that rivalry, maybe that makes it a little bit easier for, for a Boise State to kind of go out on their own. But, um, you know, I, I spoke about it earlier. It's tough if you're one of these West Coast programs because, you know, frankly, uh, you know, you're still traveling just a, a long ways uh, to kind of find peer institutions. And when you're talking about getting into November and December, when travel's already uh, difficult enough in some of those mountain regions, um, going independent is is certainly uh, an issue that is fraught with uh, a lot of issues uh, that would face a team like Boise State. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, if Boise was able to get a couple more power five teams to come to campus, I think they could get a television deal. That's not that much worse than BYU. Um, and that's something that probably nobody else, uh, at the G five level could really, could really assemble. Maybe somebody in the American, um, within the PAC 12, um, I think I've literally written multiple times that this is, uh, something that USC not only could actually pull off, but they should legitimately take some meetings on. Um, I, you could probably just say the same thing about UCLA, just say everything that's true about USC, make it 15% worse. Um, and, uh, you, now that Oregon has become a much more national brand than it was in like 1995, uh, that you, you could potentially argue that as well. I'm assuming you wouldn't want to argue for anybody outside of that group. No, I, I would push back a little bit on UCLA because they're so tied to Cal and, and the entire system there that I think that would be imminently difficult if, if you know, it, it's a tandem package uh, between Cal and UCLA. Um, and I think with Cal in particular, they're tied a little bit uh, with their Bay Area, Bay Area rivals in Stanford. I think Stanford and USC being the two private institutions could do it. Um, you know, I think the Cardinal in particular, um, seeing how, you know, that, that they've kind of built the brand as, as a national university, um, 
would, would look into it. But the easy, the easy answer and, and obvious one is, is USC. Um, you know, they, they have the prestige. Um, you know, I think they would be able to command a pretty, pretty good sized television deal. You know, when, when you're talking about going out on your own, it's all about getting eyeballs. And there's one major university on the West Coast that, that can really draw in, you know, especially when you're talking about some of those mid tier games uh, that, that you're going to have to televise if you're ESPN or Fox. Uh, USC is, is the obvious answer. Plus, you know, located in USC and, and that school, let's face it, they are not hurting for money. So, you know, kind of with Notre Dame's decision um, to to go independent and maybe take a little bit less, um, you know, I think you could kind of make the case that, that USC could kind of have some similar thoughts um, in terms of that independence. And hey, I mean, like, listen, if, if I, you got, I got to think NBC would probably be interested in packaging some of those rights there with NBC. That's that's, you know, exactly. we could, I could go 2000 words on that and, and have before um, this is running a little bit long. So we'll, we'll wrap up here. The SEC, I, 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 you could, I think, probably argue for probably four or five other programs. I think I'll go a little bit different here and stump for Florida. Just because I think that their geographic distribution of some of their fans is a little bit wider than maybe Alabama is, and their ties to some, some television areas might be a little bit wider. But let's face it, if Florida, Georgia, LSU, or Alabama wanted to do this, I'm sure they could they could pull it off and be just fine. The only, the only thing that I thought of with the SEC is that some of some of these schools you mentioned, Florida, I think they're again so closely tied with with Georgia, some of the others in that league. Uh, it, it's difficult to kind of imagine. I think if there's anybody that would not only seek it out but kind of get the blessing of all the 13 other members, it would probably be Vanderbilt, just because they're such an odd fit for the league in general. Um, so that that came to mind uh, first and foremost was, was Vandy, um, just from you know a fit standpoint. Uh, but we'll, we'll see. I, I don't think there's anybody else in the SEC that really kind of qualifies because it's such a, a tight knit league, uh, to be honest. Yeah, we'll, we'll wrap up here with the Sun Belt. Uh, there, I would probably argue for Monroe for the same reason I argued for UTEP. Your school is broke. You are spending way less than any other FBS institution. You're not really competitive in the Sun Belt right now. Go independent, uh, play all your games via bus, and uh, take your body bags, and uh, you, you'll come out ahead than, than where you are right now, I think. And that would be my selection as well. Although I think, you know, uh, Georgia State, um, you know, being in Atlanta, that might give them a bit of an edge. You know, certainly the, the new stadium, the new facilities, uh, certainly there's some some old rivalries that they have uh, regionally that, that can make a lot of sense as well. So that's the only other one that I could maybe think of out of the Sun Belt. But uh, you're right with with the, with Monroe. That is the one that kind of came to mind uh, with the Sun Belt. I mean, at, at that level, regardless of where you're located, like. Georgia State doesn't have enough fans. A Georgia State-specific television package, I don't even know if that if that would give them $400,000 a year unless you're, you're, you're bribing people to come to Atlanta to play you. Um, let's get out here on this one. And this is a question that pops up sometimes in mailbags. And Brian, I think you might be better equipped to answer. KC Masterman asks us, what are your top 10 places to eat around the college football world? And it's harder for me because for a large sense of my career, I just didn't travel all that much. Um, I, I can tell you some places that have really good press box food um, or places that I visited outside of being a college football reporter. But maybe you have more stronger opinions about about places that folks absolutely have to go to eat. 
Well, I'm certainly no Andy Staples. I'll put that up front. Andy takes things to a whole whole new level. When, when you go out to eat with, with the athletics, Andy Staples, I mean, that that is a, a treat for itself. But, um, you know, when, when I first saw the question, I, I immediately kind of thought of Clemson and, and the Smoking Pig, which is a, a great barbecue place there. You know, it's difficult for a lot of these places because, you know, if you're going to, say, Oregon, Oregon State, you're probably going to come into Portland and, and, you know, kind of drive down either day, the day of the game or uh, drive in early. So as as much as you want to stop by uh, Pock Pock, uh, you know, it, it can kind of be difficult just to kind of find the time, uh, especially in some of these tight schedules. Um, Archibald um, going to Alabama. I always try to stop by there. Baylor, the check stop, uh, which has um, kolaches. Uh, fantastic. It's, it's right there off the highway. Uh, anytime you got to go from, from Austin to Dallas, uh, I, I, I got to end up stopping there. Speaking of Austin, uh, you know, Franklin's Barbecue, uh, I think that's the top spot t- to me in the city. I know some others uh, might, might want to argue that uh, you got to kind of go out of your way to, to go to Lockhart. And I, I certainly understand that. But uh, when you're kind of staying uh, closer to the city, I, I would lean towards Franklin. Dallas is, is difficult because it's also home for me. You know, the Pecan Lodge is, is certainly a, an old favorite. Um, Fuel City Tacos uh, was, was a place that, uh, you know, I, I remember from high school um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's a gas station in, in South Dallas, which is never the most appealing thing if you're going to TCU or SMU or whatnot, but uh, it's, it's definitely worth kind of going out of your way uh, to go get. Um, trying to think of some others. Certainly Indianapolis, uh, St. Elmo's uh, is, is kind of the, the favorite for, for college athletic spots. NFL draft and, and the combine, um, you know, a lot of people stop by there or Harry and Izzy's, um, you know, I think is, is the other thing that the, the real vets know. So that, that would be one, uh, Zingerman's, um, in Ann Arbor. Uh, you might, you might have some, some opinions on that. No, no, I mean, look, 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 Zingerman's is great. Um, it's a little expensive, uh, but it, it's a, it's a, and it's, it's a little pretentious, which makes it a very Michigan man kind of place, but it's a great sandwich. Uh, it's a great, it's a great little grocery store. I, w- I would, I would not tell people to, uh, I mean, if you're, if you're in town, you should go to Zingerman's. It, it yeah, that was good. the one thing I thought of in, in, in Ann Arbor, um, Salt Lake city, um, uh, Moochie's some, some great meatballs, uh, meatball subs there. Um, and, and, and the red iguana, I think is, it has to be mentioned as, uh, kind of the Mexican food place, especially because it's kind of on the way towards the airport. So that those, those are the spots that came to mind. I think you can sit here all day. Um, you know, it's difficult too, cause you know, I, I live in Los Angeles, so there's some great places here that, that I could talk about, but uh, not really true, true college town. But, uh, those are some of the spots that kind of came to mind. Um, and, and I mean, New Orleans, it, it's difficult to, to narrow it down to just one place. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, Rufino's Cafe du Monde, what, you know, whatever it might be, uh, Baton Rouge, you know, you're, you're tailgating. So whatever the, the food is out in the parking lot, uh, th- there's a lot of great places you know, around the country. And, and that's one of the joys I think of, of covering college athletics is, is visiting a lot of these towns, whether they're college towns or big cities and finding some of those great spots to eat just makes it a little bit sweeter. Um, you know, when, when you do find that one place that, uh, you've been told to go to and, and it lives up to the hype. There, there are two things that I'll add. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, well, I've covered several games there. My mom used to teach there. Um, I, I've been to almost every major, uh, barbecue place there. I really like bees. Um, I, I, I like Carolina barbecue. It is, uh, I think, I think Greenville is kind of an underrated place. Um, especially in that league where everything else is almost everything else is a big city. And I'll just say this, like best press box food I've ever had was, was at Rutgers. I, I would go back, I would go back and cover another game. The game I was covering that was a complete laugher. It was an OSU Rutgers game. OSU won by fifty or something, and and you know it's, it's over by midway to the second quarter. 
Um, but it, this was definitely not a a 7-Eleven rollers kind of kind of press box setup there. It was better than a lot of restaurants that have been to. And I've heard that from other people that have covered games there. So if you get a chance, to, if, you're, if you're in this line of work to, to cover a Rutgers game, um, I, I, I definitely recommend it. I, it was, it was definitely better than anything I had anywhere with near campus. I think I have not been to Rutgers, so I can't speak to the, uh, the press box food there. Uh, the, the one in terms of press box foods that comes to mind is, is Notre Dame. Just the, the, the spread there, uh, is top notch, especially, you know, thinking back to like my first time, you know, going to South Bend, you know, as a student and, and covering a team there and just being like, wow, this is, this is some, some legitimate press box food. This is not, uh, not hot dogs and salad. Uh, this is, a uh, there's some, some, some nice eats and, you know, there's, there was pizza after the game. So, uh, that comes to mind. Oregon's always got a great spread, uh, two up there and, but nobody is, is going to be taking, um, some sports writers opinion on, on press box food because, uh, it's still nothing like it, like some of those restaurants that we were just mentioning earlier. No, no, you should, you should, I guess, unless you're at Rutgers, you should go eat someplace that's, that's not a press box. Um, and, and listen, I'm a 34 year old man and I live in an absolutely great food city here in Chicago. And I still sometimes go to seven 11. Don't tell my wife. Um, but I, you know, I clearly my food opinions are, are terrible because uh, I will still eat willingly eat garbage. I'm sure, I'm sure wonderful food is great. I enjoy that too, but I'll, I'll still eat a seven 11 hot dog. Um, with that, I think, I think we've covered just about everything here. I, we, we have some exciting stuff coming down in a few weeks if you enjoyed this podcast you can subscribe for free get it wherever you get your podcasts uh if you like it if you were to leave us a positive review on apple or anywhere else you get your podcast that helps more people find it um speaking of finding things brian where can people find you brian d fisher b-r-y-a-n-d-f-i-c-h-e-r on twitter is always the best place uh, a little bit more heavy on the nfl side and the lead up to the nfl draft right now but uh, i'm gonna get right back on, on college athletics especially as we've got some spring games going on it, it just kind of feels like the, the calendar is turning and uh, a lot of some some NCAA sports still to come yeah, the calendar doesn't feel like it's turning for me because as we're talking right now even though it's late april it is literally snowing um god is dead climate change is dead i don't know why i live here sometimes no uh you can find me at matt brown ep i'm at matt at extra points mb.com uh find me at extra points it's a newsletter or this podcast um thanks for listening everybody we'll catch up with you again soon